we now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Wisdom by the power of your Holy Spirit, guide us in all truth as we hear your Son, Jesus Christ, tell us about discipleship this morning. Hard words that we need to hear, Lord. Guide us and bless this discussion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was telling, we're joined today by Pastor Wilkin, and I'm sorry, your name, ma'am? Karen. Pastor Wilkin and Karen. Pastor Wilkin just recently retired uh, as pastor of Holy Cross downtown. So not to put too much pressure on him, but I'm sure he's going to join this congregation. (laughs) But I was telling Pastor Wilkin, we had a little chat. I said when I was in seminary, it must have been, maybe it was my, I don't know what year it was. It was the point at which I was allowed to preach. They finally trusted me to unleash me on the unsuspecting lay people of the church. Um, I got preaching assignments. I lived in Northeast Ohio. I went to the seminary in Fort Wayne, but we lived in Ohio where my wife taught right across the border. And uh, for some reason, I hit every Sunday leading up to the end of the church here, and I got every really hard gospel lesson that honestly most pastors kind of cringe about a little bit when they when they get it. So I agreed to do this Bible class months ago. And Pastor Thomas said, okay, we're going to put you the first Sunday in September, first Sunday in October, first Sunday in November. And then he reminded me Friday that I had Bible class. So I started to look at this. And I went, oh, no, not. <laughs> why don't I get, why can't I get an easy one? Um, these are hard words from our Lord. Very hard words. And Pastor Wilkins said something funny to me. He goes, it's even worse than you think it is when you read it. We'll talk about that. <clears throat> Let's just, I will read this lesson out loud. Kind of look at my Greek a little bit here. I'll read it and then kind of go through and paraphrase and make comments on the text itself. Now, great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes after him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now let's just go a little more slowly through this. It's very interesting. The text in the Greek begins with that first interesting verb. And like in many languages, Greek also strings together different words to give the force of the, to kind of to paint a picture. So it begins with 
following after him or coming along with him or kind of wandering behind him, there were not just, doesn't say just a crowd, but many people, many, many people. And it's interesting, he turned, so you get this image, Jesus was probably walking with his disciples and there was this big, huge group of stragglers just following him for a variety of reasons. And we know some of those reasons. They, all, they weren't, in fact, often they were badly motivated as they were following Jesus. That's why he has to say these words. Because if these people were really coming after him to be his disciple, they needed to count the cost. <clears throat> and, that, and now comes the string of, he just piles it on. So, if anyone uh, coming after me or coming to me, if you're coming to me to be my disciple, and you uh, do not hate, the word is hate, it's a very strong word. Now, you might wonder, why would Jesus talk that way? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, the Jewish people in, in the Hebrew language, they had these extremes. You know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I would say, so these love and hate, these stark contrasting concepts. So this is not, this is not something alien to this culture. Um, but now he really piles it on. Does not hate his father, his own father, and his mother, and his wife, and children, plural, and his brother, and his sister, even his very own soul or self. And it says here, it's interesting, uh, he is not able to be my disciple. Uh, Matthew, uh, the Holy Spirit gave Matthew the word worthy at this point. He's not worthy to be my disciple. Luke has the word for, for ability or power. Or just, it's not within his power to, it's not within his power to be my disciple unless all these things are happening. And we can turn to Matthew's, Matthew's version of this um, is just as harsh. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that's kind of Matthew's take on this same type of speech from Jesus. That's Matthew 9, 34 to 38. Did you notice the word worthy? Okay, Not worthy to be. Here it says you just flat out aren't able to be. It's not within your power to be my disciple unless all these things happen. So this whole unit here is all about disciple instruction or disciple teaching. Um, and the word for teaching here is didache. It's interesting, one of the earliest non-biblical sources of insight into the early church is a document called the didache, which is simply a list of teachings. It's very fascinating. So this is all about discipleship this morning. <clears throat> Let me just pause here and talk a little bit about discipleship. You know the Great Commission that we've all memorized, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We kind of run past that, but it's... The force of the verb there is 
And as you are going out, Jesus assumes we are, and as you go, discipling all nations, and then how? By baptizing and teaching, okay? So this is about discipleship. This isn't about making a decision for Jesus, or this isn't about joining a church after taking a few weeks' worth of courses. Heaven forbid we have some LCMS congregations letting people into the congregation after a Saturday morning workshop. Ask me how successful they are at retaining those members. Not too much. This is about discipleship. And this is the great crisis in our church body today, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and all churches. Discipleship. It's a lifelong thing. It doesn't end well, I got baptized, that's the end of that. Or, I got confirmed, that's the end of my discipleship. Or, well, we got married in the church. We had our children baptized, we don't go to church much. And this is about lifelong, intentional discipleship. And at the, uh, our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, recently concluded its national convention, and it adopted a new emphasis for our church body called Making Disciples for Life. And not to plug CPH, but... I'm Paul McCain. I work at Concordia Publishing House, so this is, this is my chance to make an advertisement. Our publishing house had already begun talking about this very thing before, the, before we even heard the Synod was doing it. Everybody's ears are attentive now, and our radar is turned all the way up because we realize <clears throat> there's a big difference between bringing people into a congregation through the front door and making sure they don't just slip away through the back door. What I always do when I look at a congregation's statistics, to me the key uh, metric, the key um, performance indicator, if you want to, uh, a key performance indicator, if you want to call it that, if you're familiar with that term from business, is how many people attend church on average every Sunday. So it's very interesting. When you go to the lcms.org website, you can punch in any congregation in the synod. And if they are reporting their statistics, and some don't, it's pretty obvious because they're a flat line for 10 years, they realize they haven't been reporting their statistics, and I usually know why, because it's not too good. But if you look at the number of baptized members, sometimes we see these big numbers, and sometimes we see the numbers going up, and that's great, okay? I'm not discounting that. But to me, what's really the most meaningful statistic is the average worship attendance. And sadly, sometimes you see it going down, or it's only 30% or 20% of the total baptized membership of a church. Okay, to me, that's where, that's where we need to do our strategic planning, and that's what Jesus is recommending in this text. You build a tower, you plan. You go to war, you better be prepared. Personally, when you come after Jesus Christ, you better be ready, willing, and able to give everything up for the sake of what Jesus gives you. You remember these stories in the New Testament where these young people, young men, very zealous for their faith as faithful children of Israel, would come to Jesus and would leave crestfallen because they would keep pressing Jesus. You're like, well, I've kept, I've kept the whole law, Jesus. Yeah, I've done that. I can tick all that off. And Jesus said, okay, fine. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. So these shocking demands. Now, <clears throat> right away we need to ask ourselves, and I think you'll agree, 
does Jesus literally mean, you know, he wants Pastor Wilkin to hate his wife? He wants you to hate your sister? Uh, he wants you to hate your own life? To hate your husband, hate your wife? Does he want you to hate your children? Okay, this is, it's dramatic effect, but it's not merely a rhetorical device. It's a wake us up. The cost of discipleship is high. We here in the United States have had it so good for so long. For so long. And we still do in spite of people saying, oh, Christians are persecuted in the United States. No, they're not. Compared to people who are actually killed and tortured, you need to do yourself a favor, and anybody listening to me, go online and find the speech uh, presentation made at the last convention by a German pastor, Gottfried Martins, who is a pastor of a very large, probably has the highest number of people in church on Sundays in Berlin of any church. They're almost all from Iran, native Iranians, Farsi speakers. And you listen to his speech about what his people have given up to be Christians as they came to Germany. Germany wants to get rid of them. Germany wants them all to just stay Muslim. And Germany's persecuting them for, they claim, well, their conversion is not sincere. It is very sincere, and it's very dangerous. Men have told stories about their families they've left behind, parents being put in prison, being put in jail, being tortured. When they take communion for the first time, the men commune together and they lock arms and go up to the altar for the first time as a show of solidarity with one another. Now that's the kind of persecution I'm talking about. But we feel the pressure here, I think in some ways, it's even more insidious. This pressure to conform, to give in, to compromise. Now, there's a time to speak and there's a time to listen, okay? I'm not advocating that when you're in a situation where someone says something you disagree with, you have to just automatically pipe up and make sure they know exactly what you think and why they're wrong, okay? But often, how many times do we just kind of remain silent when an opportunity's there? Let's go back to the text here. So the point Jesus is making here is that a love of our friends and even our family can make discipleship difficult or impossible. However, if you hate them, then it's easy. If you're willing to put, again, this is an extreme way of talking, but once you resolve yourself to the fact that there is nothing more important than, being, than knowing Christ and being known by him and being called into his kingdom, it puts it starts to set your life in order. But again, is this easy? No, just the opposite. Jesus is warning here. It's very difficult. It's easy to be devoted to a master or cause when you hate every rival master or interest. Therefore, hates is the appropriate word here. But the practical meaning really is love less. Love less than. You know, don't love anything else more than you love Jesus Christ. And don't use that as an excuse, well, yeah, I love Jesus, but boy, I really love money too. Well, but I've got it. It's just be on your guard. Jesus is in the process here of preparing his disciples for the time when he would no longer be with them face to face. And then what? Then what? So 
hating other objects of affection insofar as they present themselves as hindrance to the supreme love of the master. Talks about wives. Interesting, Matthew doesn't mention that. Just because most loved and exercising the most entangling influence. So, it's true. Our closest, most intimate relationships are wonderful blessings from the Lord, but how many times have we seen what happens when someone is unequally yoked with an unbeliever, against which St. Paul warns strenuously, <sighs> causes big problems. And I'm, you could all probably tell stories from your own families. I can. We all have these situations that we struggle with and pray about. So all of this Jesus is encompassing, and then he builds up to the very climax of his whole point. Hey, father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, but then your own soul, your own spiritual self, life itself, your own life, the thing you love the most. Who loves you more than yourself? Nobody. Think about it. If we're honest. Does anybody love you more than you love yourself? The disciple is to hate friends as he can hate himself. And again, this is looking like very much like Matthew's uh, lesson, which we talked about. So let me pause at this point and just ask you, what did you think when you sat down this morning and first saw this lesson? What came to your mind? Lance? All right. So Lance just pointed out, and thank you for a good segue, this is why we have the lesson from Deuteronomy to go along with this gospel lesson. This isn't a new concept, okay? The person, the man before them saying, unless you hate this, that, and another thing, you're not worthy of being my disciple, is the same one true God who gave the commandments in Deuteronomy. See, I, who's I? The Lord, the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. I have set before you today life and good. No middle ground. Life and good or death and evil. There's no middle ground when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can't do it halfway. You can't ease yourself into it comfortable, comfortably. Did I say that right? <laughs> In a comforting way. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. So Moses is warning them. The Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you, here comes this cadence again, life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, <clears throat> to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. <clears throat> in my daily readings, I've been reading through 
First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, First. Oh, it's depressing. Oh my goodness. Just account after account of the most horribly wicked things that these people that Moses had warned, they went and did just what Moses warned against, okay? They put something else ahead of their following the one true God. And these horrible, horrible things. It's just life and death, blessing and curse over and over. So yeah, Jesus is echoing this kind of stringent demands that the Lord makes. So why does the Lord why does the Lord make such what seem to be almost impossible demands? What do you think? Yes, sir? Right. So you're saying what the gentleman's saying is uh, these things are set forth very clearly. This is what we must do. Beneath it, though, is nobody knows better than the Lord how rebellious and stiff-necked and by nature sinful and unclean we are. We tend to forget it, even though, you know, every single Sunday, in one way or another, we're admitting before one another, saying out loud in this big room full of people, there's strength in numbers, so it's kind of comforting, but I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Okay? But how easily, how quickly we forget that. And again, this lesson starts off with Jesus acknowledging the fact that there was this big crowd of people kind of just following him. They probably didn't really know, you know, they probably, uh, we know for a fact, many of them wanted to see miracles, signs and wonders. They wanted to watch the, this, the world's best street magicians ever been known. <laughs> they wanted to see more of these magic tricks Jesus could do, these miracles. Plus two, Jesus would sometimes stop and feed them. John 6, we hear about the bread king. You know, they wanted to make him king just because they had filled, he had filled their bellies with bread. So this is serious stuff, you know. And the church has this sacred duty, solemn duty, to teach us, to warn us, to preach these things to us. The great concern today is when we look out across what's happening, particularly in mainline Protestant church bodies, that they are not just teaching things that are wrong, but they are apostatizing from the Christian faith. That's the worst thing you can do. When a church body declares now, as the ELCA just did this summer, that the use of the, of the historic terms revealed in Scripture for God now are optional and can be replaced with other terms referring to a feminine something or another, that's not just false doctrine, that's apostasy. When they adopt a resolution saying basically we're going to get along with other religions, we have to show them respect, at their convention a young man stood up and said, I'm going to speak truth to power, it's an uncomfortable truth, but Jesus said, I am the way, truth, and life, no one comes to the Father but by me. The whole committee turned him down in front of the whole assembly. That wouldn't be respectful. One of their pastors stood up and she said, well, our God is much bigger than that. We understand that now. It's easy to point fingers at the ELCA with such dramatic examples, but again, let's point them at ourselves. You know, the Missouri Senate needs this focus on making disciples for life. It's a lifelong thing. It's a way of life. That's why the Christians, what was the, one of the early names for the Christians, the movement? The, the way. The way. 
The Didache speaks this way. That early document talks about the way of life. Okay, it's not just a mental ascent to a body of doctrine. It's a all-consuming embracing what Jesus Christ has done for you. He's grabbed a hold of you, and now we're going to grab a hold of him and never let go. Let me continue here. So then Jesus gives a couple interesting examples just to, I don't know, some people call these parables. I'm Maybe, maybe many parables. They're more just illustrations. So he talks, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Interesting. The Lord, and um, how many of you heard Pastor Thomas's sermon last Sunday on why me? Did you hear that sermon? Wasn't that great? It's online if you want to hear it again. I listened to it again. It was the best sermon I've ever heard on that concept of the just, uh, discipline. Okay, not punishment, discipline. Uh, not something we like to think about. But it's a wonderful thing. <clears throat> Does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. People always want to know, well, what is this cross? What is this cross? First of all, it's not something you choose for yourself. Okay, you don't have to... You don't have to worry about getting a cross, all right? Don't, don't trouble yourself with that. You will have crosses to bear, so don't go looking for them, okay? And during the Middle Ages, they took this very literally, and people would run off to monasteries and, and uh, nunneries and take upon themselves this rigorous lifestyle. Martin Luther did. He, he said, I was, the, I was the monkiest of all monks I knew. I mean, he... he was the greatest monk of monks, just like St. Paul said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You don't have to go searching for a cross. They will come to you. I would say you should be concerned if there's not a thing in the world bothering me. Well, I appreciate that kind of optimism. All right. But if that's really true, there's something not quite... You're not aware, you're not alert, so don't, you don't look for it. The Lord will lay the burdens that he has preordained to put on you, okay? To conform you to the image of himself. That's what our Lutheran confessions say, a beautifully comforting text. He will sustain you, he will strengthen you, he will make it possible for you to bear the cross. And then he goes into these little, uh, little mini parables or stories. Okay, say one of you are going to build a tower. Does anybody go and make home improvements without sitting down and counting the cost? And again, he's talking to this group of people following him. They're like, why are you following Jesus? Well, I don't know. It just seems like the thing to do. Jesus says, hey, I'm glad you're following. Great to have you here. But count the cost. Be aware of what's involved. So he tells this little story. Uh, people might even begin to mock him. Christianity, I'm just reading from another source here. Christianity is a great and arduous affair and is fitly compared to this great and holy work. But the greatness of the undertaking is sufficiently represented by the second parable. Um, most of us could probably build a tower if we had to. Okay? So Jesus is kind of easing us into this dramatic ap ap application. It could be a tower that they would set up in vineyards as a watchtower to watch over the vineyard. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 21. 
It could be a refuge in time of danger. Maybe it was like a, a keep in a, in a fortress people would flee to during battle. It might even be a nice ornamental thing. But then he goes on to talk about this interesting elevate illustration of going to war. And, and th this one's kind of interesting. The king is going to go out and fight. Now, not everybody's called to go do battle. Christian disciples are. Okay? So we're doing battle. Ephesians talks about we need to put on the whole armor of God to defend ourselves against slings and arrows that Satan will hurl our way, the things we encounter in, in life. So this is an interesting little parable here. If you're following Jesus because you think it's going to unlock the key to a grand and glorious career, then think of it as fighting a battle. Um, the same word is used in 1 Corinthians 14.8. I just wanted to read that to you. Get a sense of what's going on here. Boy, if you want to see the tiniest print Bible ever, just use one of these. This is something. Um, uh, here we go. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Interesting, this comes up when he's telling people, hey, don't run around speaking in tongues when no one knows what you're saying, because you guys are at war. This is a battle here. We don't need a lack of clarity. We need a distinct call. So this battle concept. Interesting, uh, just an extra biblical source to unpack this idea. In Homer, the idea of a battle prevails, but in later writers, uh, that of war. And there are accounts of people seriously trying to think of how they could go out with 10,000 people and beat an army of 20,000. Jesus is not recommending that here. If we think we're going to win a battle on our own with our poor, poorly equipped, poorly empowered selves, it's as foolish as thinking we can run out against 20,000 with 10,000 people. Instead, we better, we better be realistic here. The implied truth is that we, the disciples of Jesus, are always engaging in a very unequal conflict if we think we can do it on our own. St. Paul says we wrestle against principalities, Ephesians 6.12. So, again, Jesus is warning, don't think by following me you're going to just have you know, the ability to just go out and win every battle on your own. This is all about... Christ calling you. And again, just the, uh, the underlying sentiment is here to the effect, <clears throat> so then every one of you, anybody listening to me as I tell you these things, if you do not renounce all you have, is not able to be a disciple. So then he goes into this interesting little thing about salt. Has anybody ever tasted salt that's no longer salty? Nobody? Yeah, me neither. I, interesting expression. Don't ask me to explain it chemically. But let's assume for the sake of the argument, as Jesus does, the salt has lost its saltiness. Jesus uses this expression in Matthew 5 and in Mark 9. The salt appears to denote disciples. And the idea is this. Genuine disciples are an excellent thing. They are valuable as salt to a corrupt world, 
but spurious disciples are as utterly worthless as salt which has lost its savor. It's not even good enough to throw on manure. It's cast out, it's worthless, it's good for nothing. So that's kind of walking through the text. Let me just back up now. In the context of this gospel, Jesus has this encounter with people following him. He is told the story of a great banquet, which emphasizes the presence of God's kingdom and the need to respond to its coming. Luke related a number of Jesus' teaching that described the conditions for membership. He did so in order to avoid possible misinterpretation of the parable, in which the conditions for attendance at the banquet follow the parable in 22.1-10. In this passage, Luke gave Jesus' answer to the question, effectively, what must I do to be saved? Same question asked in 1630 of the apostles. Salvation, that is, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, entering his kingdom, having eternal life, eating bread in God's kingdom, being acknowledged before the angels. These are all things Jesus discusses in the gospel. And following Jesus, our text, 1426, are different ways that Luke has of expressing the same reality. And then there are these two parallel sayings describing the cost of discipleship. Elsewhere, uh, these illustrations are found only in Luke. Interesting, only in Luke do we read these things. A third saying on the cost of discipleship and this parabolic conclusion. The following Jesus involves hating one's family and even one's life. And here's an understatement. Over the centuries, this verse has caused great despair and confusion. Indeed. Clearly, Jesus, who summarized all God's commandments as loving God and one's neighbor, could not here have been demanding a blind, raging hatred of your family. The confusion is due to Jesus' use, and here's when I said this earlier, this is very important, of a Semitic idiom, a way of speaking, a Hebrew way of speaking. To love one person more than another is described in Old Testament language as loving one and hating the other. Love, hate. Just a real stark distinction. In contrast to Luke's word-for-word translation of Jesus' words, Matthew kind of gives us this thought-for-thought translation, which I read to you. I don't want to say Matthew tones it down, but Matthew helps us understand it a little bit more. So what Jesus is doing here is revealing that his demand is for us to love and obey him more than anything else, even our own families. Being Jesus' disciple entails primary allegiance to Jesus. No one can ever be allowed to usurp that role in your life or mine. Even as God is to be loved supremely with no other God or thing taking priority, so too Jesus takes priority even over family. The absolute nature should not, of this demand should not be overlooked. And right away in the history of the early church, we have dramatic examples of people handing over family members who had become Christian. We see it today in the Muslim world, Islamic world, all over the place. If you convert in many of these cultures, you are liable to death. In fact, if you're a Muslim uh, young lady and you convert, uh, your father has the right to kill you. It's uh, It's an honor killing. This is, this is all codified in this thing called Sharia law. Sharia law, which is kind of a, well, there's the Koran, 
And then there's this whole code of laws built up to support this religion. In many Islamic countries, the most radical we can think of, Sharia law is the law of the land. Here in the United States, thankfully, it's not. Um, so there are very serious consequences to being a Christian disciple. I've got to tell you a story about this Sharia law thing, just so you know I'm not making this up. Um, my mom taught in Michigan for years before she retired, and as you know, in, the, in Michigan there are a lot of uh, Muslims. Um, some places in Detroit, you can't even drive. I mean, it's dangerous to go if you're not a Muslim. Um, but she was in the Saginaw Bay area, and there's a lot of doctors there who are Muslims, very good doctors. But uh, this uh, Muslim family put their child, their son, in a Lutheran school, and my mom, being my mom, <laughs> went to the home and just said, well, now, I just want to ask you a question, Dr. So-and-so. Uh, we will be teaching your son the Christian faith, and we will require him to recite from the Bible and to recite from the catechism. We will teach him about Jesus, who died for his sins. And if your son should be moved by the Holy Spirit to accept Jesus Christ as his Savior, what would you do? Because I understand in your country where you come from, you have the right to kill your son. She said this. And there was this incredibly awkward long pause and the man simply looked at my mom and said well that's true but we are in America so he didn't deny it just making the point many Christians around the world have it a lot worse than we do the point here is Jesus does not want anybody following him to do this out of haste or kind of frivolously or emotionally, but to count the cost. Perseverance will result only after sober consideration of the cost of following Jesus. I'd like you uh, to share with you, and then I'll open it back up, uh, questions here. Save some of this. I always like to look at what the early church fathers had to say about texts. And uh, there's a great commentary out there which gathers quotes from the early church fathers. Um, they've always got interesting insights. They're so far removed from our time and place, they're not as hung up in our cultural assumptions. So they all recognize there's this incredible paradox here in this text. On the one hand, we are to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us, and then we're supposed to turn around and hate our families? As if they're an obstacle to eternal life? St. Augustine points that out. He pondered this. Love your enemies, but oh, go hate your mother and father. And So this, is, this is, strikes us as very odd. Jesus is not saying we cannot love our family, but that we dare not love them more than we love him. So the church understood this right from the beginning. We cannot ever let our natural mother and our affections for her supersede our love for Holy Mother Church, which nourishes us with food that lasts for eternity. Now, this is, that's what St. Augustine said. And if you know anything about St. Augustine, his mother, who's, we commemorated her this week along with St. Augustine himself, his mother, Monica, poured her heart out in prayer for years and years and years for her son, Augustine. She was married to a pagan Roman, and had this little boy, Augustine. He was going down his father's footsteps. 
Augustine, in his day, all that mattered was being a great public speaker. That was the Super Bowl, movies, entertainment, the greatest thing they had and they enjoyed on an intellectual level was listening to brilliant public oratory, high art. Augustine went chasing after the best orators he could find. He dabbled in pagan religions. He did things he was never proud of. He had a child out of marriage. Uh, he named him the gift of God, interestingly. So Augustine lived a pretty wild life before he became a Christian. But Monica prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for him. Please turn him. Augustine heard about this great public orator in, uh, in Rome named Ambrose. Happened to be a bishop. He didn't care about Christianity. He just heard this guy really can give a public speech. So he went and listened. And he came back, and he listened, and he listened, and he listened. And through Ambrose's preaching, the Holy Spirit converted St. Augustine. He was baptized there. Well, his mother rejoiced. So with that in mind, Augustine says, we can't let our natural mother and our affection for her supersede our love for Holy Mother Church. Luther says the church, this is in the large catechism, is the mother that bears and begets us by the word of God. What Jesus is calling us to be is to crucify, to die, and be buried with him in baptism. So these things are nothing new at all. The early church has always understood them basically as we understand them today. Augustine says, The Lord gives the signal for us to stand guard in camp and to build the tower from which we may recognize and ward off the enemies of eternal life. The heavenly trumpet of Christ urges soldiers to battle, but his mother may hold him back. It's interesting. Okay, any questions or comments at this point after we've been through some of this? Anybody? Well, let's keep going here with some of these um, comments here about the, about the text itself. Getting down into some of the more specifics of the text. These large crowds following Jesus, we hear about this often in the Gospels. And, and you get this impression that Jesus was kind of here, walking around with his disciples, and then within eyeshot, there were these just crowds of people following him. That's exactly what, what had happened. And when Jesus sat down, like Sermon on the Mount, he was catechizing them. He was teaching them. Okay, So these people were always following around until things got kind of dicey with Jesus until things got kind of uncomfortable with Jesus, until they found out people were after to kill him, until they began to see the Pharisees coming after Jesus and challenging him, people started to kind of drift away. Remember Jesus even said at one point to his disciples, well, are you too going to leave? Are you going to leave too now? And what did Peter say? Lord, we say in church, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, words of eternal life. But, of course, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? What happened when he was on trial? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Gone. The only people who stayed with Jesus were just a handful of very faithful women and his mother. But at this point, these large crowds, they were still attracted to Jesus because he was, you know, like I said, he gave them food, he did miracles, he gave great speeches. Um, and what we're talking about here in this text, Jesus isn't laying out conditions for Christians to, to fulfill to become super elite Christians. This is just baseline, this is what it is to be a Christian. 
You put Jesus and his word above all things. So when these people were coming to Jesus, when Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me, means to seek salvation from him. Jesus lays out, okay, but be aware what's going on here. And there's Old Testament examples. For instance, Jacob's greater love for Rachel is phrased as hating Leah. Now, did he actually hate her? No, he loved her less. A person who commits himself or herself to Christ will develop a greater love for both neighbor and family, ironically, although at times loving and following Christ may be seen as renunciation, rejection, or hate if the family does not share the same commitment to Jesus Christ. And we've seen that, you know, we, that's what we see happening today, tragically, in many Christian families which have worked so hard. Now people are saying, why are the young people leaving the church? It's the church's fault. The church has gone wrong. The church must, must change. We must have that to keep people in church. We underestimate the power of the devil. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Don't, don't go run to Pastor Thomas. Um, we underestimate the influence that Satan wields through this culture, which just swamps our young people with this constant anti-Christian message. It's everywhere. It's, they have these. I have one of these. It's always on and it's always pumping. If I let it, the most vile, foul, insidiously evil junk. Okay? So... Don't always, I, I don't, oh, the church has failed. Well, really? Are you telling me the word of the Lord doesn't endure forever? That when we preach faithfully and teach faithfully, the Holy Spirit has stopped working just because we're not using the latest gimmick or doodad? No, that's one extreme. The other extreme is the church. We are given all the gifts and blessings of technology. And that's why this has become one of the most effective and powerful means by which the word of God is spread around the world at the speed of light. I mean, I have a whole library here. I can read and study the scriptures constantly. So it's, you know, be wise. Count the cost. Okay, he's not saying don't build a tower. Don't build a tower, but count the cost. He's not saying don't go out and fight a battle, but count the cost. Be aware. And again, this thing about the salt losing its saltiness. Like I said, I've never really encountered that myself. But here's an interesting observation I did read. The thought here may reflect the fact that most salt in Jesus' time and in his land came from the Dead Sea and it contained carnalite or gypsum. And if, if it was pro improperly processed, if it was improperly processed, it would become insipid or poor tasting. And it became of such little use that you couldn't use it for anything. You just had to throw it out. And that's an interesting insight. It's a speculation, but that might explain what Jesus was saying at that time to people who would immediately understand, oh yeah, if we get some bad Dead Sea salt that hasn't been processed, well, it's no good. So again, Jesus wants to wake us up, he wants to shake us, and he wants to wake us and keep us vigilant and on guard. And as we head towards the end of the church here, which is coming sooner than we think, 
we're going to get more and more of these readings from Jesus, which aren't the typical nice, loving Jesus. You know, everybody like, I am the good shepherd. Oh, we love Jesus the shepherd. And then you have Jesus, go hate your father. Go hate your mother. Don't let anything get out in front of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Now, this has been a lot of law today. What should it cause you to do? Run away from Jesus? No. Get even closer to him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Be faithful as you are. This morning in late service, we have the Lord's Supper. He's going to feed us. He's going to provide for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He knows what I need. He leads me beside the cooling streams. He feeds me. He cares for me. He loves you. He dies for you. Now think about these words and think about who has perfectly counted the cost. Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, if it's your will, Father, take this from me, but not my, not my will, thy will be done. Jesus count the cost. Jesus went out and did battle for us. Jesus is the one who has hated our greatest enemies with the most intense hatred that God can muster, and that's pretty strong. And he's destroyed them. He's defeated them. He's crushed them. He's won you back from them. So you don't have to follow all of that. You now can come after Jesus Christ. And as you do, you count the cost. That's what this gospel lesson really is about and what these lessons are about next week. All right. Questions, anybody? Thoughts? Yes, sir. Okay, that's a good, that's a good question. The gentleman... The gentleman just said, well, it's interesting, Pastor McCain, you said you look at the metric of average worship attendance, but shouldn't we be looking maybe even more deeply at how many are active in Bible class and things like that? I don't disagree with you. The reason I choose average worship attendance is just because, to me, it's a quick, it's like taking a patient's temperature. It's, it's a quick way of taking the, the temperature of a congregation. If people aren't even showing up to go to church on Sundays, then they can't even get into the Bible class. But no, your point's, your point's well taken. There's all kinds of metrics we could use. But I'm just saying, my, my caution, and the Missouri Synod's learned this a hard way, is it's wonderful to bring people in and to make that baptized membership number, you know, and that on the graph you can see online, woo, goes up. But then I always look at the average worship line, and it's often, you know, Baptized is going, let's see, I'll do it from your perspective. Like this, membership, average worship attendance is flatlined for 10 years, and in some cases going down. So discipleship is here, okay? Coming after Jesus is wonderful. Just like Jesus said, all these people are following him. But let's count the costs. And so for a congregation, I think we just get a quick gauge of where we're at as a congregation by looking at how many of our people are actively involved in church. And there's all kinds of things we can do, okay? Um, and the other comment that I want to maybe explain a little bit better is when people complain about, well, we're losing these and we're losing them, 
Granted, there's always more the church can do, always more the church can do, but we have to be careful that we not allow ourselves um, to basically start to build a tower without counting the cost. And the focus of the church's ministry is on preaching and teaching. It's, we have a saying in publishing at Concordia Publishing House, um, that kind of applies to the church, the boring stuff sells. The boring stuff sells. Now, that's an indictment of our attitude, but at the publishing house, we can get all excited about this cool new concept, this exciting new author, this neat page design. We think, wow, if we only did a book like that, we'll sell a million copies of it. But guess what? The stuff we think is boring is what sells. People want Bibles, hymnals, catechisms, curriculum. So I'm saying the church, in its effort to appeal, needs to be careful that we not allow ourselves to run so far off into gimmicks that we abandon the good, solid things that God has given us. Another question or comment? Yes, sir? I'm just going to repeat for our audience. You're asking about salt losing its saltiness. Um, he said, is this not a possibility of Christians losing their, losing their faith? Yes. The Lutheran Church, unlike the uh, Reformed Church, does not teach once saved, always saved, because the Scripture doesn't teach it. King David fell away when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed in battle. He fell away. The Holy Spirit renewed his faith through the preaching of the prophet who came to him and told this story about the man who had a little lamb and it was killed. And David got angry and the prophet said, you're that man. So there's possibly something there to what you said about salt losing its saltiness, Christians losing their faith. Anything else? We'll tell you what, we are going to conclude with a word of prayer. Thank you to all of you who have joined us from home. We hope this class was a blessing to you. Let us conclude with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray that as you call us into discipleship to you, you keep us strong and focused. Renew us continually by your word and sacrament. Bless all those who teach us, who preach to us, who care for us. Thank you for your word, which continually guides us. And now, Heavenly Father, bless us this week as we live our lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.